Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Yours in Murder contains descriptions of violence, adult themes, foul language, and input from cats. Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to Yours in Murder. I'm your host, Rebecca, and I'm actually doing this episode solo today. Rachel wrote this episode for us, and then she got on an airplane and went to D.C., where she got on a cruise ship and went to the Bahamas. So she's not exactly sorry that she's not here with us on this episode, because she is in the Bahamas. However, this episode is coming out around Valentine's Day, or shortly after, so I was told then I am obligated to tell you that she loves you all and wishes you a happy Valentine's Day. And with that, I guess I'm getting straight to the episode because I have nobody to talk to about the weather, which is what we normally do about this point in time. So this case that Rachel found for us is actually a really interesting one. It is historic in a couple of ways. So the case we're covering is the murder of Hella Crafts. And I looked up how to pronounce her name. It is spelled H-E-L-L-E. It is actually Danish. I got a couple different pronunciations. So I went with the one that they use on forensic files because they normally get it right. So if I'm making a mistake here, I apologize, but I trust the forensic files. And that is actually one of the reasons that this case is historic. The murder of Hella Crafts, also known as the Woodchipper murder is the very first case covered in the very first episode of Forensic Files, which is one of Rachel and my very favorite Netflix shows. If you've never watched Forensic Files, I highly recommend it. One, they solve all the cases, which is good in my opinion because I do not like cliffhangers. Two, they're all real cases. And three, they all use forensic science, which I am a big fan of in case you didn't know that already. So that is one reason that this case is historic. The other is that this was the first no-body murder case to be successfully prosecuted in the United States. And while these are now really rare, they do happen. And it's a case where they're successfully able to prosecute a murderer without having the body of their victim. It's very difficult to prove that somebody has committed murder if you can't even prove that the victim is dead. So cases like this are, like I said, extremely rare, but every once in a while there is enough evidence that 
you can convince a jury that yes, this person is conclusively dead and yes, this other person is responsible. But it takes a lot of evidence. So a little bit about Hella's background. Hella Nielsen was born in July of 1947 in Denmark, which explains why she has the name Hella, which is Danish. She trained as a Pan Am stewardess in Miami, where she met her future husband, Richard. Hella officially immigrated to the United States in 1971. In 1975, she married Richard Crafts, who worked as an airline pilot for Eastern Airlines. They made their home in Newtown, Connecticut, and yes, that is the same Newtown that is now infamous for the Sandy Hook school shooting. They had three children, but both parents still worked, which wasn't as common in the 1970s as it is now. Most people expected that Hella would give up her job when they had kids, but that wasn't the case. They both decided to continue working. Additionally, Richard volunteered with the local police department before becoming a part-time patrolman in a neighboring city, and that was on top of his airline work, so he worked a lot. This marriage was known to not be a particularly happy one. Richard Crafts had quite a temper and was suspected of several extramarital affairs. Hella found out about these affairs in 1985, which was 10 years into their marriage. The next fall, she apparently had enough and hired an attorney and a private investigator who found concrete proof of these affairs. Hella wanted a divorce and spoke to friends about these plans in mid-November, but she mentioned that her husband had told her marriage is for life. And that takes some gall to say that when you are the individual having the extramarital affairs. Hella worked as a flight attendant from Frankfurt to New York on November 18, 1986. Other flight attendants dropped her off at her house in Newtown at about 6 p.m. Shortly afterwards, a snowstorm went through the area, knocking out power and making the roads dangerous to travel. Richard claimed that shortly after the storm rolled through and knocked out the power, he took his wife and children to his sister's house. But after the flight attendants dropped off Hella, she was never seen again. Since she was a reliable worker, other flight attendants were alarmed when Hella didn't show up for work. They contacted Richard and didn't really get a good explanation. He said she was visiting her mother, or she was on vacation, or he didn't know where she was. So he told several different stories and didn't seem overly concerned that nobody was able to get in contact with his wife and nobody knew where she was. Because of this, Hella's co-workers, who were getting a bad vibe and no answers, called the police. Like Richard, the police were not very concerned. Her co-workers next went to her attorney and the local PI, Keith Mayo. On December 1st, 1986, Mayo also reported Hella missing to the Newtown police, and they took next to no action. Mayo decided that he was going to take matters into his own hands, since the police were obviously doing nothing. He began by speaking to the people closest to Hella. First, he talked to the live-in nanny. It seems a little odd at first that this family would have a live-in nanny. That's a little unusual. 
But when you stop to think about it, both Hella and Richard worked jobs with the airlines that kept them away a lot of the time. Additionally, Richard was working another job on top of that. So when that's all taken into account, it makes sense that they would need a lot of childcare. So they had to live in nanny. The nanny told Mayo that around the time Hella disappeared, there was a large dark stain on the master bedroom rug. When the stain was mentioned to Richard, the rug disappeared. Mayo also looked into the credit card records of Richard around this time. Among the transactions, he had rented a wood chipper. He also purchased a brand new bed set and a chainsaw. A large freezer went missing from the craft's garage around the same time. So this was all adding up to looking pretty suspicious for Richard. During this time, Richard was also under suspension from the police, not for anything super nefarious, but he had his kids on patrol with him in November. And they put him on suspension, which I totally understand. There should not be kids in a police car while you're policing. Bad idea. On December 19th, Mayo went to the local dump, where he found the blood-stained carpet missing from the craft home. He then took this evidence to the police and the state's attorney, and they finally decided to investigate. Richard Kraft took and passed a polygraph test at this time. Now, I spoke, well, many, many times about how I feel about polygraphs, but most recently, in our last episode on Richard Jewell, we talked about polygraphs. So, in case you haven't heard it before, my brief... Dislike of polygraphs. Polygraphs cannot prove that you are lying. Polygraphs, first of all, are often called lie detector tests, and they don't do that at all. Polygraphs measure the sweat on your fingertips, your breath rate, and your blood pressure. So the idea is that when a person lies, those three things normally increase. Your hands get sweaty, your breathing rate increases, and your blood pressure goes up. So how a polygraph works is they ask you the same questions multiple times and measure these three things. If they all go up all the times, they assume you're lying. This is not scientifically conclusive in any way, shape, or form. They cannot use it in court. It is simply an investigative tool. However, when people refuse to take polygraphs, they're often... I guess, demonized. People assume they're lying if they won't take it. But there are false positives. There are times when it says people are lying or we interpret the graph as saying people are lying when they're not. And other times, people are able to keep their perspiration, their breathing, and their blood pressure under control so none of these indicators are raised when they are lying. So Richard Kraft took and passed a polygraph And this case further proves why polygraphs are garbage, in my opinion. Furthermore, forensic expert Dr. Henry Lee was brought in for this case, and that's where Rachel left this. But from the forensic side, I have to explain a little more about Henry Lee for all of you. Dr. Henry Lee is known very well in the forensics community. 
Dr. Lee is a professor at the University of New Haven. He is also the director of the Forensic Research and Training Center at the Henry C. Lee Institute of Forensic Science. And he worked for the state of Connecticut for a while as a forensic expert. He does a lot of lectures and he's worked on many, many, many famous cases, including the John Bonet Ramsey case, this case we're talking about right now, the Helicraft's wood chipper murder, the O.J. Simpson trial, the Lacey Peterson case, the post 9-11 forensic investigation, the D.C. sniper, and there was a reinvestigation of the assassination of John F. Kennedy that he is also well known for. He also consulted on the Michael Peterson case. And he was brought in at the beginning of the Casey Anthony investigation, but then didn't end up testifying. So he is well known and pretty well respected in the community, at least in the true crime community. But when you get to the forensic side of things, they start to get a little sketchy. So Dr. Henry Lee in 2007 was accused of hiding or destroying a piece of evidence in the Phil Spector murder trial. And nothing really came of this allegation, and that's kind of where they left it. So there was some suspicion on him for tampering with evidence. And then recently, in June of 2009, the Connecticut Supreme Court ruled that Lee had made an error in testimony he said that a towel tested positive for blood, but according to his notes, he had never tested it, and later tests by independent labs found no blood at all. So while these seem really minor, crappy but minor, the thing about forensics is when you mess up even a little bit in your testimony, it calls all of your other cases into question. So I don't know if he hit or destroyed a piece of evidence. They kind of left it there, and we have no evidence either way on that. But this one with the blood, which is recent, it's what we call dry labbing, saying that there is evidence that you have tested and giving the results of those tests without ever having actually done anything. And it is the biggest no-no that there is. So... I guess it calls into question his work in every case he's ever done because if you dry labbed in one instance, what's to say you haven't done it in another? And in the forensic sciences, your credibility as an expert witness is what your entire job hinges on. If you do the work but are unreliable or dishonest, you are no good to anybody. So I guess knowing all of this, makes me take things that Dr. Henry Lee has done with a pretty hefty pinch of salt. And also, I don't know why he wouldn't just test the dang towel for blood. It doesn't take very long to do. Just saying, it's a very fast test. But that's the expert he brought in at the time. He was still well-respected. He hadn't done a lot of his famous things yet, but he was well-respected. And he does remain pretty well-respected. But his reputation is now a bit tainted. Anyway, a local snowplow driver came forward when this investigation was underway. Shortly after Hella's disappearance, he saw a wood chipper near Lake Zor during a snowstorm. Some sources say that he saw Kraft using it. Others just say that he saw this wood chipper that Richard Kraft had rented. 
Dr. Lee accompanied the police on a search warrant to the Crafts' house. Not really something a forensic scientist normally does. That's CSI work, not forensics. There's a difference. But Dr. Lee did discover several small bloodstains and a blood smear on the mattress. Tests determined that it was O positive, Hella's blood type. So, this blood smear on the mattress was blood, and it was O positive blood, which is one of the more rare blood types, and it happened to be Hella's blood type. Now, that's not conclusive, saying it's definitely hers, but it's on her bed. It's probably hers. A lot of women's next question would be, okay, but are you sure she was bleeding and not, like, menstrual bleeding? I mean, mattress stains. People with uteri know how it is. But this was proven to be circulatory blood, not menstrual blood. There is different components making it up, like the uterine lining. So these stains seem to be from somebody being struck on the head and falling against the mattress. That's probably why they had Dr. Lee go to the house as well, to be able to see the entire scene and be able to determine, I guess not necessarily ballistics or trajectory, but not every police officer would know, oh, that's not just a normal, oh, I cut my leg shaving and went to bed stain. And Dr. Lee did. So this Stain, like I said, seemed to be from somebody being hit, probably in the head, and falling against the mattress. The bathroom towels also tested positive for blood. So the police assumed that the killer had used them to clean up the scene. At this time, the police decided to search the lake and the river areas near where the wood chipper was reported parked during the time of Hella's disappearance. Around and in the lake, they found bits of metal, type O human blood, and less than three ounces of human remains, including a tooth with dental work, a toenail with pink polish, and bleached blonde human hair. Not a whole lot to work with. Also discovered in the lake was a chainsaw with the serial number filed off. Police were able to read the number finally, and it matched the chainsaw Richard Crafts had purchased. So oftentimes, especially with firearms and other tools like this used in murder, people assume that filing off a serial number destroys it. And that's not the case. Because when these things are made, they are stamped with a serial number. It's not just carved in, it is stamped with a heavy machine. So all of the metal underneath that number is compacted. So even if you file off the number, using the proper chemicals they can see where the metal is more dense and then read the number from that. So, quick tip, filing normally does not destroy serial numbers unless they are made by hand. There are also fibers found, and those fibers matched Hella's favorite nightgown. The samples of blood had degraded enough that DNA typing was impossible. This is at the beginning of forensic DNA analysis, So a lot of blood or other bodily fluid was needed in order to do DNA testing because they weren't using what we have now, which is PCR, which is polymerase chain reaction, which replicates the DNA, and then we can kind of get a profile. So they needed a lot in order to get the profile because they didn't yet have the technology to replicate it and make more 
So with the very, very little they had, there was nothing they could do DNA-wise. But they were able to do blood type testing. And the blood was type O, which matched Hella's blood type. They were also able to determine that the blood was from a woman. In order to charge Richard for this murder, the police had to confirm that Hella was dead. And that the human remains, scarce as they were, belonged to her. The tooth had unique dental work, and it was eventually proven to be fillings that had been done in Denmark, at the same location where Hella had dental work done. This was enough for the police, who legally declared Hella dead and issued a death certificate. In January of 1987, Richard Crafts was arrested for his wife's murder. Richard's trial was moved to a nearby town due to the publicity of the case, and the forensic evidence that was found ended up playing a huge role. Richard claimed that the wood chipper and the chainsaw were used as part of the conditions of their divorce to do yard work, because everybody has yard work as divorce terms. Prosecutors said that Hella was killed by being struck with a blunt object. Her body was then stored in the freezer. Soon after, Richard hacked her to pieces with a chainsaw and fed her body through the wood chipper before disposing of evidence. That's what the evidence seemed to conclude. The jury ended up deadlocked with an 11 to 1 vote, so a mistrial was declared. The trial was restarted in another town, and Richard was convicted and sentenced to 50 years in prison in 1990. However, due to the laws at the time, 50 years didn't mean 50 years. Richard was released early for good behavior late last year. Since I am recording this in 2020, that would be late 2019. Although good behavior laws in Connecticut have since been struck down, they still apply to those sentenced before 1994. Richard Crafts is now 82 years old. He is in transitional housing and is expected to be fully released in June. Hella's case is also famous because it was the inspiration for the movie Fargo. And that's what I have for you all today. I know that was a rather short episode. I'm looking at a little over 20 minutes before editing. But when you only have one host... It's normally quite a bit shorter, we found, and I tried to do a lot of science for you all. You know how I like the science. So if you have any thoughts on helicrafts, wood chippers, or that Rachel had the audacity to go to the Bahamas when it is February and cold in Illinois, you can always send us an email at yoursinmurderpod at gmail.com. We are also on the Facebook and the Twitter as Yours in Murder. We also have a nifty website where I eventually put up sources. I'm a little bit behind at the moment, but I'll get them up there. And that website is yoursinmurder.net. We also have links to our Patreon and our PayPal on that website. If you feel like giving us some financial support, we always appreciate it. If you're not able to do that, we understand. We are broke as well. But if you still want to help us out, you can always rate and review the podcast, share it on Facebook, or just tell a friend. So thank you so much for listening, and until next time, we are yours in murder.